Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's go to him dependently in prayer. Lord, we pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds, that as the scriptures have been read, And as your word is to be proclaimed, we may hear it with joy. Teach us, we pray. Lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Westminster divine John Arrowsmith referred to the sequential order of terms in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 as the golden chain of our salvation, he said, in fact, a chain, this golden chain, which God lets down from heaven, that by it he may draw up his elect. God's golden chain, it's a beautiful expression if you think about it. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he Called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From eternity past to eternity future. Before we were to when we will always be, those whom he justified... He also glorified God loves His children, preserving us for our good and for His glory. And arising from this truth is a certain assurance, an assurance of our destiny. 
As Christians, we do not live to appease the divine, to win his favor, to warrant his love, as it were. No, we rest. Think about that. We rest in what God has done. Persevering in the sovereign love of God. And incidentally, this informs how you live your life. This informs how I live my life. Though we know this, however, it is really easy for us to fall back into fear and to doubt. When we encounter trials and tribulation, we may wonder, where's God in this? Amidst our suffering, we may feel more like the forsaken than the beloved. It's easy to let the circumstances of life be what informs our perspective rather than what Paul referred to as the hope of the glory of God. It's real easy for that to happen. You know this, right? I know this to be true. The circumstances of life can become the lenses through which I see the world rather than the hope of the glory of God. When all things are not working together for well, my definition of good, I may very quickly presume that there is a broken link in God's golden chain. I may wonder, where is God's love in this? It's times like these that you and I need really good questions. Penetrating queries to rescue us, well, to rescue us from ourselves. And Paul gives us at least four really good questions. First, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Second, who shall bring charges against God's elect? Third, who is to condemn us? And fourth, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So there's four questions. And you already know the answer to all four of them. But Paul doesn't ask these questions for us to find out the answer. He knows that we know them. No, he asks them to be acknowledged. He asks us these questions to be meditated upon. He asks these four questions to remind us that no one can thwart the preserving love of God. And so let's start. Let's look at these questions together. We need these kind of questions to speak into our lives. Let's start with the first. Who can be against us? Now... Were the question not rhetorical, and I realize that it is, and you do too, but were the question not rhetorical, perhaps we could answer the question with a succinct list of our known enemies. And here's who we know are our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. No surprises there, right? Surely they are individually and collectively, surely they're against us, right? Is Paul's question then a denial of their power and their influence? Surely it's not. I mean, think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world entices or attacks us. 
We know there is no middle ground with the world. Likewise, your flesh and my flesh, it knows us best, doesn't it? It knows our vulnerabilities. It knows when to attack us, never resting in its sinful desire. And then, then there's that old snake in the grass, our adversary, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so it would seem to me that this trio of evil is against us. But when Paul asks, who can be against us? He's not asking if we suffer at the hands of the world. That's not part of the question. He is not asking if we struggle with our flesh. He is not asking if the devil seeks our demise. No, these are all constants of this life. What Paul is asking transcends our circumstances, pointing us to who we are ultimately. Given that our adversary has been defeated, given that our flesh has been crucified, and given that the world has been conquered, all of which is to be revealed on the last day, really, who can be against us? Not the world, not the flesh, not the devil, all of whom have been conquered in Christ. No one. Nothing can be against us. But when I ask that question, who can be against us, obviously reading Paul, it's kind of like saying, why worry? <laughs> I mean, undoubtedly we shouldn't worry, but why? Well, we need a reason to say who can be against us, to ask who can be against us, and Paul gives us one, doesn't he? And he does it by asking a question. Look at verse 32 with me. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now think about what Paul is saying here. He gives us a gospel-centered reason we can be assured that indeed no one is against us. That's what Paul is saying here. Such assurance rest on nothing you have done, on nothing that I have done. It rests squarely on what God has done. It rests squarely on what God is doing. It rests squarely on what God will do in us. It's that golden chain of the preceding verses. Everything, Paul says here, all things flow from that truth. Consider this, not only did God not spare His own Son, but He actually gave Him up. He gave up His only begotten for all whom God had foreknown, for all whom God had predestined. In love, God gave His only begotten to atone for our sin through His death on the cross. We are the beneficiaries of what the prophet Isaiah said 
when he said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now if God the Father would ordain such gracious violence. And if God the Son would endure such cosmic wrath. And if God the Holy Spirit would deliver it to us. If such an act was ordained, accomplished, and applied for our sake, is there anyone or anything that could thwart the sovereign love of God? No, not a soul. Though the world hates us, though our flesh seeks to ensnare us, though the devil desires our destruction... Our gracious God works all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so practically speaking. Good news. This means that you can stop waking up in the morning and living your life like the world is against you. Like the world's got it out for you. Like you're living your day and, oh boy, the world is against me. Yeah, you can stop that actually. Because what the world means for evil toward us, God means it for the good of our sanctification. Also, it means that you can stop living like a slave to your impulses. I call this the emotional pinball machine. Like you're just bouncing all over off of your impulses. Well, you can stop that too. Because when our flesh rears its ugly head... The Spirit enables us to crucify it for Christ's sake. And this means that you can stop living in fear of the devil and his evil mark of the beast. <laughs> because when the pitiful snake prowls around, when that pitiful little serpent rears its head like it's going to roar like a lion, the Lion of Judah safeguards us sanctifying us by His presence. Always, no doubt, evermore. Peter says, in His divine power, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That pretty much sums it all up, doesn't it? And if you want to read back over that, that'd be Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four. A good one to think on, to meditate on. So you see, in a, spin, a sense, the spirit within us rightfully roars. Who can be against us? There is no answer. No one. Not a soul. But Paul then adds to that first question, that all-important question, he adds a second question. Who shall bring charges? Having grounded the eternal assurance of those 
who are called according to his purpose, Paul moves to a legal perspective. He, he's adding to the first question. Now he's turning and, and giving us a perspective of the courtroom, if you will, of justice, of God's justice. And he asks, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Surely you and I have done bad enough to discredit our assurance. Surely you've done enough. Well, I promise you, I've done enough to warrant worry. <laughs> Lord, how have I failed thee? Let me count the ways. Could be a poem I could write, isn't it? Maybe you too. But as soon as Paul has asked the question, look at verse 33. Boom, the answer. Who shall bring charges against God's elect? You see what he does there? He quiets our self-righteous folly with fact. It is God who justifies. Just about the time we're about to think about ourselves and all the things that we've done wrong and how we failed God and how while we just don't measure up, Paul says, zip it. It is God who justifies. You're not cooperating in this. When Paul writes earlier, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean that God gave Jesus, we bring the faith, and the cooperative result is peace. Aren't we doing a good job working with God in partnership? That's not what he's saying. No, as he explained to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. You know how much you brought to your justification? You want me to go on? Nothing. We contribute nothing to our justification. That we are not under God's judgment... That we are not due God's wrath. That we enjoy peace with God is due entirely to the mercy and grace of God. And because this is so, we may rest assured. We may rest assured that no one, not even Satan himself, can bring charges against us. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I have found that Christians who doubt their salvation and struggle with assurance are often looking at what they themselves do. And they have taken their eyes off of what God has done in Christ Jesus. When God looks upon those whom he has justified, he sees not a guilty sinner. He sees his righteous son. Well, that makes all the difference in the world. We are counted righteous in God's sight. Justified as righteous. Or as the shorter catechism beautifully puts it, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And so 
The second question is, who then can bring any charge against God's elect? Not a soul. Not a soul. But Paul follows quickly behind this. In fact, you might consider these two questions together. He follows quickly with a third question. Who is to condemn us? Who is to condemn us? The 8th chapter of Romans begins with this glorious verse. I know many of you know it. You may even have it memorized. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, say it with me, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And that, eighth, that first verse of the 8th chapter, it is a summary statement. And it's pointing back as a sense, making a statement about the three preceding chapters. Chapter 7, chapter 6, chapter 5. It's pointing back to that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But also in a sense, it points forward to a verse. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn us? Now stop there for just a second. Think about that. He has said in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now he is asking the question. We understand that it's rhetorical. But he is asking the question. And then he is going to give. And it's the answer that is so important here. Who is to condemn us? Statement. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that. Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so, who in the world would dare, based on that, who in the world would dare to condemn us? Well, only one is so brazen. But the life, death, and resurrection crushes any condemnation because the accuser who condemns us, he has already been crushed. As I read to you earlier, Peter says that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. The first of those promises God made in the curse of the serpent. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In which God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the offspring of the woman? Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the gospel promise that God made at the fall, He kept in the one who died. More than that, than the one who was raised. Though Satan may bring charges against us. Though he may seek divine condemnation for us. God looks to the atoning work of Christ upon the cross. He looks from the cross to the empty tomb. He looks from the empty tomb to the resurrected Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. And though our adversary, though he may hurl Sinful accusation. Christ intercedes on our behalf. Rejecting the charges of the evil one. Advocating as the righteous one. Whose mediatorial work for us. Rendered all condemnation void. All of it. There really is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And so after those first three questions, it is, to a certain extent, logical that the fourth question should follow. In other words, if we have listened attentively to what Paul has said about these first three questions, it's in a sense that we might say this question for ourselves. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, there's a temptation when considering spiritual matters, those weighty spiritual matters that, 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 that we pastors and, and theologians, we love to discuss and we love to think about, such as the foreknowledge of God and predestination and justification, on to glorification. And there's some that would argue, well, those are important, but there, there seems to be a disconnect from our daily lives. Significant spiritual matters such as the foreknowledge of God, predestination, our calling, justification, our glorification, I would argue are not to be divorced from the practical aspects of our life. And what I mean by this is that when faced with trouble or hardship, when faced with persecution, whether it be famine or poverty or danger, some might say, what's our union with Christ have to do with that. Everything. Because when we lose eternal perspective. Due to the momentary. Due to what we are going through in this moment. We quickly forget what God is doing in us. And what he is preparing for us. When we get so captivated. With what is going in our, in our world and the circumstances of our lives. And we begin to see the world and our life through that lens. It brings discouragement. A loss of hope. A darkness. What Paul is teaching us here is something very, very practical. When faced with the worst that life can deliver Set your heart and your mind on the love of Christ. When, the li when life throws it at you. And you're hit by it. And you think, where is God in this? Turn your heart and your mind. Train them upon the love of Christ. When faced with the vilest treachery. That your flesh can deal with. Train your heart and your mind upon God's love for you in Christ. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. As we sing in that hymn, so it is true. That God is indeed working in all things together for good does not, let me repeat what you already know, it does not exempt us from suffering. As the psalmist morbidly sings, and as Paul quotes it here, for our sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm not sure that I've ever heard that verse quoted in scripture memory trials, right? <laughs> Not a popular verse. And yet, what Paul is conveying here is that even in death, we are not defeated. 
We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Lifting our focus from ourselves to Christ. What it does is it places our suffering in context. It gives us divine perspective. And it helps us to remember God's dying, Christ's dying love for us. There is nothing more stable. Think about this with me. There is nothing more stable, nothing more secure, nothing satisfying than remembering that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is not hyperbole. That's not pastoral speak. That is the truth. There's nothing more stable in your life. There's nothing more secure. There is nothing that will give your heart more satisfaction than meditating upon the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So Christian, hear me loud and clear. There is nothing in your past. There is nothing in your future. There is nothing that can thwart the preserving love of God. Rest assured, he who foreknew you, who predestined you, who justified you, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because this is true, because this is certain, we can read the conclusion of this passage as a doxology. Because we are sure of this. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for these penetrating questions. But we thank you all the more for the gospel that answers them. And we thank you that there is indeed no one against us. No one who charges us. No one who condemns us. No one who can stand against what you have done for us in Christ. Nothing to separate us. We thank you for this truth. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would enable, encourage us as your people, to be ever mindful of this gospel truth. And when we face times of discouragement, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to recall this truth, this eternal truth of your preserving love for us. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, indeed our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.